2: Deep breathing for the day. Oh, headphones are under your handbag. Well, my handbag's very, very heavy at the moment. I'm finding it's uh, we've tipped into that place, haven't we, where you need a lot of different layers because the tube's very hot. Yes. My walk to the tube is very cold. Yes, the yes. office is just indeterminate.
3: You never know. You, you just, just don't know what you're getting. I tell
2: you what, Ed Fasey likes a much, much
3: colder studio than Mariella. Well, What do we read into that? Don't don't get Mariella started on the menopause again. <laughs> That's <laughs> what she starts. Do you know, I was only saying to you the other day, I miss the old days when nobody ever talked about the menopause. No, you don't. <laughs> don't be silly. Sometimes I get nostalgic. when well, we could just talk about women's things.
2: Sometimes I still genuinely uh, celebrate the fact that I don't have periods anymore. Just occasionally I'll have catch a, myself. You have a little party. I do. I have a little yeah. party in my head. And I was thinking about it the other day uh, because we were planning a holiday uh, for next summer, mm. and for those last couple of years of my periods, I genuinely had to plan a holiday around them because oh, they were so vile and oh, horrible. Right. I just, it wouldn't be a holiday if I had a period right. on holiday. So I had a little moment of thinking, Oh, never again. Never
3: again. It is wonderful. It's so liberating, honestly. Not much good if you're 24 and listening to this. But hey, hang on in there. Yeah. The good times will come. Now,
2: I think it is good to know that uh, it's not forever.
3: No, it isn't. Uh, and we're talking about this particularly today here in the United Kingdom because uh, this won't impact on the rest of the, our considerable global audience. Uh, but uh, tomorrow we're having a statement from our uh, finance guy, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And uh, he's going to, apparently, we're told, um, get rid of something called value added tax on period pants. And this will be potentially good news to users of period pants, uh, although not necessarily because the manufacturer will have to pass the cut in price on. But hopefully some of them will.
2: So our VAT's currently running at 20%. 20%, So it does make a difference because Mm. them period pants, they aren't cheap either. No, they're not cheap. They are quite good. They're very good. And I wish
3: that they'd been around in our day because they're relatively new to the market, aren't they? Yeah. And uh, they, I mean, they work. I was trying to explain them to my mum the other day and she, she clearly didn't get it. Which bit
2: didn't she understand? Well, she
3: just, she she. I could tell she wouldn't trust in the concept. And I, I said, actually, I think most, most of, of the women who use them use them in sort of the early days of their period and maybe the last couple of dribbly days, if you see what I mean.
2: Well, I think they're just extra security. Yeah, they, aren't okay. act, they act as extra security. Most people I know using them are using something else
3: and a period pant. Okay. Yeah, um, just to protect their modesty. Um, I should have known this, and I'm grateful to Julia who emailed to say that it was Tracy Emin who created that lovely neon art at St Pancras Station. And can you remember what it says? It says, "I want to spend my time with you." Oh, and it's under the clock. Well, that's nice it's actually change. brilliant. It's in a kind of bright, bright pink, and it's just—I it, don't know—it makes it makes London seem incredibly inviting and slightly sexy
2: well i think king's cross and st pancras do full stop so the roof at king's cross that incredible cantilevered slightly kind of it's not art deco is it but no. it's slightly in modern industrial roof is so beautiful because it brings in all of the light, light yes, and it's, there's something almost kind of
3: church-like about it as well. Mm. I always think that's an absolutely lovely station to come into. You know, it's only within the last couple of months that I've realised that most, though not all, of London's main stations are on that road. Well, well, <laughs> and that's something to isn't that something to do with the railway companies when they were all set up?
2: Yes, but but that is only when you're travelling north or, or west, west, obviously, because. Uh, Charing Cross, London Bridge, the, the stations, Victoria. Liverpool Street, Victoria, are all the other side
3: of that yeah, road. That's true. <laughs> okay. A lot of London's main stations are on that road. Okay. <laughs> okay. Do you think maybe they built the road after the stations? Well, I don't know. I mean, the, it was always the big puzzle, wasn't it? It was why on earth had the Queen put Windsor Castle so close to Heathrow? Yeah. I mean, because she must have been woken up at dawn's crack. A boom. <laughs> Uh, Right. (sighs) Uh, Dear Jane and Fee, says Helen, uh, ex Harrogate? Now Wakefield. I was at a wedding probably about 25 years ago at the Swan Hotel in Harrogate. The Swan is famous for being the place Agatha Christie was found after she went missing. Something we talked about only last week. Anyway, I go in the loo there and when I'm washing my hands, I see a familiar face and greet them with, hi, how are you? Some were awkwardly because I couldn't quite remember which relative or friend they were, but I just knew that I knew her. She was really nice, but it was only later I cottoned on the fact that she wasn't actually at the same wedding as me. She was Sue Johnston, who is, of course, the mum in the royal family and is, I can report, a lovely person. Really lovely. Liverpool fan, nothing wrong with Sue. She would have been very nice in that toilet. Uh, Angela sent us this saying: fascinating interview with
2: Philippa Gregory, went straight out and bought her book. That's the spirit, Angela. My dear mum and dad, originally from the Lake District, went over to New Zealand in the 1950s. My mum was a teacher and over the course of a few years she worked hard and became the first woman head teacher in Auckland, which was no mean feat. The Auckland Primary Headmasters Association then had to change its name to the Auckland Primary Principals Association, Appa instead of Afa, by which it is still known today. So my dear mum was a bit of a trailblazer in her time, just thought I'd mention it. Do you know what, I really love those kind of stories and it would be great to have more of them. Uh, If this is read out, it'll be the third one for me, so I beat all my friends. Well, I'm afraid, Angela, you've reached your limit now. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't matter if on tomorrow's podcast the most prescient and pertinent thing is mentioned to your life... I'm afraid we won't be reading it out So Oh, you're a very,
3: very harsh lady.
2: <laughs> Angela says, I'm wondering, are you immediate bedmakers or do you leave it so the bed can air? Great Good question. question.
3: Excellent <laughs> question. Now, I've got into the habit because I read something that you should let it air for a couple of hours. Was that a bed box I was worried about, do you think? Because I certainly don't make make the bed immediately. That's wrong. I know you shouldn't do that. But I do think it's good to always have the bed made before you leave the house. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yes. I have got standards yes I think coming back to an unmade bed oh, is actually the disgusting. sign of a slattern. It, it no it really oh, is possibly a little bit slutty yeah, well, no I mean don't do that I don't think anyone listening to this would be the sort of person who'd come home to an unmade bed <laughs> I really I don't want to I don't want them listening yeah, anymore this is not the podcast for you no if you do that but I think you're right you are meant to
2: air it um And for quite a while I just folded back, so I'd make the bed immediately, but I'd just fold back the duvet. Hmm. So it was aired, well half of it was aired, Uh, but for some reason I've stopped doing that and I can't think why, maybe it just doesn't look very nice. But I make the bed immediately, Jane. Oh, do you? Yes. No harm has come to me.
3: Well, you're not the tallest. Neither are you, but I suppose that's not necessarily connected. Right, uh, we were talking about the new uh, Argentine Argentine president. Argentinian. Argentinian. Um, And we have had some correspondence from Argentina, so here goes. I'd like to remain anonymous, says this listener. I've lived in Argentina for 20 years, although as a non-citizen I don't vote. I feel sad, angry and scared for all the chaos of Argentina, The far right is so far what we lacked, what you have lacked since the 70s and 80s dictatorship. It isn't just, and I'm going to try and pronounce his name as our correspondent suggests, it's not just melees, Trump-Bolsonaro politics. It's his rage, his hatred and quite possibly his lack of sanity. I like to believe that the percentage of people who genuinely support his politics is not huge. He is successful notably with the disillusioned male youth, the anti-woke, the wealthy and expats. Mainly, though, many hate the ruling Peronist Party so much they would vote for literally anyone else. The endorsement of the 2015-2019 president made it more publicly palatable to vote for this man. I think it softened his image. I'm no fan of the other candidate either. Emotionally, I could describe it as being forced to choose between a Sunak or a Trump. As much as you might not like one thing, the other is just beyond the pale. I fear for hard-won women's rights, LGBTQ+, plus, the environment, schools and health, as well as the economy, which is already a disaster. The only bright side is, unlike Trump, there's no hand on a nuclear button. Right. OK, well, that really is clutching at straws, but, uh, but mm. thank you. Um, yeah. So
2: what do you think it would be that changes that direction of the... Shape of a hard man having to be filled by
3: the shape of an even harder man. I just don't know. I genuinely don't understand the thirst. The very clearly, what is a very real appetite from so many voters all over the world in different sorts of countries for this sort of character? Yeah, untested, possibly not entirely sane, but someone who trades on their maverick status as though their complete lack of experience is something that people should be prepared to buy into. Mm. I just don't get it. Yeah, it is really strange, isn't it? Really strange. Because
2: you just wouldn't, I don't know, just just take a really kind of mundane thing. You wouldn't really want your local, I mean, pick any shop or whatever, you wouldn't want your local petrol station being run by yeah. somebody who'd never ever taken an order of petrol before or handled mm. a van before mm. or knew how to use a fire, didn't know how to use a fire extinguisher, didn't know how to use a till, no. you know, all those really kind of basic things. Yeah. So what is the attraction of electing somebody to run a whole country on a manifesto of kind of, I don't know how to do this and I'm proud of that. Yeah. So Vote the, for me. This guy wants to, his ideas are to, uh, to literally blow up the central bank so they can't make money anymore and that will stop inflation. Uh, He has in the past said uh, he thinks that the selling of organs might be something that you could bring into normal modern society and medicine. I mean, it's madness, Jane. It's real madness. So I'm with you. I don't understand the attraction, but I just wonder what changes that direction, because it seems to be the bigger the shape, the more it's filled by somebody at the moment.
3: Well, uh, I'm going to attempt to lighten the mood by just acknowledging that he is supposedly a proponent of tantric sex. Oh, I know, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, and what was really harrowing for Fi and I was that we did have to explain to a junior colleague what it was, which... uh, And it was a gentleman. Um... Uh, he was very nice, that yeah, very nice young man. It's terrible though, Jane, because um,
2: you and I only know tantric sex well,
3: because of what the Sting did. Because of Sting, well, and uh, we don't and it, really know what it is. No, we don't. <laughs> and it was only ever. Well, did he? He did make claims, didn't he, that he could? Thanks to, I think, he, he used to say it was because of his yoga prowess.
2: But no, but that's, basically. I think that's the myth about tantric sex. Oh, I don't it? think it means that you are pre for seven hours. I think it means that you start a thought about sex and you can kind of hold that thought hold about the thought. sex yeah. for seven hours. And I just posit this here, Jane, there are a lot of people who are doing that, but they can't spell tantric. They don't know the word, but they're still doing it.
3: They certainly couldn't spell pre <laughs> I'll tell you that much. When I hold thoughts, it's things like I really must remember to get broccoli from Sainsbury's exactly. local on the way. Home. Oh shit! Did I turn the iron off? Yeah, that, I've that, held that thought for most of the day. Yeah, oh, <laughs> totally. Anyway, if anybody out there is an expert in, t- of course, you'll be so busy doing the tantric sex you won't be able to email us. But if you have ever been um, someone involved in it or been on the receiving end of it, you know, I, know, and I shouldn't, didn't really phrase that properly. But I. Honestly, just tell us more. Yeah, just Cause
2: we're a little bit naive and neither yeah. of us wants to put it into our search engine. No. no. Antonia says, uh, what well, my sister Sarah pronounced Sarah. I said Sarah last night. Said, well, it's hard to know. Uh, didn't realise when she got her email read out tonight about her kitten mittens in a box was that I win, really. As not only did you read my name out too, but I got Fee to talk about the archers. It's like some yeah. kind of.
3: Actually, act. no, because you did, you allowed me to reference the arches without going, you know, like you normally do when they are mentioned.
2: What, when I touch?
3: You, you just say, no, you, yes, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, the podcast I'd written to was Ambridge on the Couch one to recommend to Jane very funny analysis of the wonderful everyday t- oh, <laughs> also I wanted to say how much I enjoyed the book club choice the violence was hard to stomach but it was more than made up for by the beauty of the boys relationship now this is Boy Swallows the Universe by yep. Trent Dalton we did the interview with Trent this morning uh, so it was 10 o'clock our time which means it was very
3: very, well, uh, quite late. And I, late I, his I, time. I looked, of course, he was in the dark. He was in the dark. And, which I didn't want to ask him. What time is it with you? But sometimes I, I long to ask people in Australia. Well, I was just
2: working it out because they do um, the live thing, don't they, for Anton Deckno in the jungle. And mm. uh, when I watch it at nine o'clock, it's seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, where the, they are
3: Whereabouts, which Australian city are I they closest know. That's to? I don't want too many questions. <laughs> It was 8pm. I find that very disturbing. Thank you, Eve. Uh,
2: Anyway, Antonia goes on to say, I loved how the meaning of the title of the book was gradually revealed and used as a theme to convey much more than the three words. With a full circle back to your thread about humanity in prisons, it was so poignant to hear the impact of the letters Eli sent. Uh, And that's such a lovely, lovely... A uh, little part of the plot, actually, Antonia, isn't it? Uh, so our book club special will go out this Friday. We will include as many of your thoughts and opinions as is
3: humanly possible. Trent was just lovely to he talk to. He was very, very charming. Yes, And he was. he was also incredibly excited that anybody anybody outside Australia would have discovered this book and would have enjoyed it. Yeah, so, so. isn't
2: that fantastic? That's the fantastic thing about the book club, Joe? Well, so far.
3: I mean, Valérie Perrin never did... Agree to come on did she
2: no she didn't but that was because she didn't speak English well she should have made my French isn't bloody, good enough no yeah. don't be so stoned I want to keep your sourness at bay book club is a sanctuary Jane <laughs> it's a sanctuary for positivity about other people's work um but uh we would never have come across Trent Dalton would we or I would have watched Boy Swallows Universe which is coming to the Netflix and thought oh I've seen that now I won't bother to read it Ooh,
3: no, I wouldn't recommend relying on a Netflix version of anything.
2: No, but that's what I mean.
3: I would right. have watched it and oh, then I, I wouldn't see. have read the
2: book. Yeah. I would have thought, yeah. I'm not going to read the book because no. I've seen it on the TV. Mm. And I probably wouldn't have read any of his, but now I may. You
3: you, know? I feel now that I should confess that I, I wasn't going to, but I have watched those four episodes of The Crown. And what uh, do you think? Well, <laughs> I kind of felt a bit... A bit ashamed, and I I don't know why, but I did watch all four episodes. The acting, I think Elizabeth Debicki is she's just astonishing. It's I mean I I think I saw Diana twice in my life on, on the publicing. I think I covered one of her very final UK sort of public engagements at a hospital in Bromsgrove. And um, She often spoke of it. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, they, the royals do, and in her case, did have to do some pretty run-of-the-mill type activities. Um, but the reaction that woman generated was absolutely off the scale. I mean, it was simply crazy, the atmosphere on that occasion. And the people of Worcestershire d- don't normally sort of, you know, lose their fruits, but emphatically the reaction to her was a billion percent positive. But can I ask you, what is the point of watching well, this series of the Crown? I suppose, because I, I, I really, I agree with people who say so many people are now going to think that's what actually happened. We've got no idea. Absolutely no idea. And there's a very interesting interpretation of the state of the relationship between Diana and Dodie in episode three. Um the suggestion in the crown being that he did indeed propose to her, but only because his father had ordered him to. And she had absolutely no intention of marrying him, according to the crown. So but his father would, would have been left with the impression that they were engaged. You have to watch it to understand that, but um anyway, the acting, uh certainly by Elizabeth Tebecki, I think is some of the best I've ever I mean, she just is the woman, as far as I could make out. Let's talk about women in finance. No, one more question. But isn't that
2: impersonation that you're applauding,
3: not acting? Gosh, I don't know. see, I'm, that's a very good question and I don't know what the answer is to that. Uh but surely all acting is has a degree of impersonation in it. But if you're playing a real person y-
2: well yes, but but if but if the thing that's so striking about the crown is literally that you can't you almost can't believe it's a different person, you're thinking, gosh, that is Diana then that's a different thing that you're commending. I mean, i just say this to someone, I genuinely, and back to how you introduced this, I would just feel dirty watching that series now. Uh, and and also, poor Dodie. I mean, I, I don't know, the bloke never met him, whatever. Uh, maybe he was an absolute piece of work, but he goes down in history now, mm. In by the sounds of it, quite a kind of weak, rather demeaned way do we know that he was
3: that we don't know anything no so um, I don't I think know, we, we I think we know that it's probably not a bad idea to be somewhat sceptical about his, father, his late father oh and, god and yes. his motives. but we know quite um, a lot about him don't yeah, we? we we certainly do Yeah. Um, Lucy, is. um, she works in finance. She has emailed to say that she describes herself as a fairly rare beast, a 59-year-old woman working in finance. And she says it staggers me how often I hear women in particular say things like that they're not really interested, that they don't understand, or I leave all that to him. I can talk all day without charts and graphs about what really matters in investment and how important it is that women have financial knowledge and independence, and I can make it understandable, honestly. OK, Um. more importantly, she says, these are her kind of off-air credentials. I have a strong set of pegs, not a euphemism. I like dogs in coats. I love Ken Follett, and I'm going to see the play Lioness in early December. Ticks all our boxes. She really does, and good luck there at Lioness. Mm-hmm. But, yes, Lucy, thank you. I wonder what I've got a strong pair of pegs
2: would be euphemistic for. Legs. That's too obvious, isn't it? Don't people call legs pegs? I don't think they do, do they? I thought they did. (laughs) Okay, I'll have to get one of our Cockney experts in. A cockney person. Uh, right, shall we get to the big interview of the day? Yes. Uh, so this is an interview with two people today. It's with Laura Trevelyan, who's a former BBC journalist, and it's with the Labour MP for Norwich South, Clive Lewis. Now, the thing that they've got in common is uh, really quite a dark thing. Well, it's a very dark thing because Laura found out only a couple of years ago uh, that her family had been in charge of some plantations and uh, about a 1,000 slaves on the Caribbean island of Grenada. And when she found this out, she was uh, ashamed and mortified and horrified, as she says in the interview. But she also decided to do something about it. So her family has given £100,000 to support education on the island, and that's just the start of a journey for her. So she's given up her BBC post, and she really is dedicating her working life to reparation of... Of slavery. And Clive Lewis's ancestors may well have been those slaves because that's what his family heritage is. Uh, he's from a family, as he explains, uh, who would have lived on Grenada at the time that Lord Trevelyan's family were running that plantation. So he's done some very interesting things, not least of which pose questions to Parliament about why reparation can't be made by the UK government. And they have come together to make a podcast where they go back to Grenada and talk about all aspects of slavery and this extraordinary shared history that they have. It's called Heirs of Enslavement. So they came into Times Towers today to discuss it, and Clive started by telling me a little bit more about his family.
1: Um, So obviously I've got my English heritage on my mum's side, which I knew plenty about because I I lived for a while with my then and granddad. You know, paratrooper in Normandy in the Second World War. I knew a little bit the history of that side of the family. On my dad's side um beyond my great grandmother who came to bar came from barbados to grenada and the immediate family not very much which is very common for people from the caribbean because there isn't really the kind of records that they have access to where they can find out beyond that uh, and a number of other reasons so on my dad's side i knew that he was part of the back end of the Windrush generation uh, i know some of the stories of the things that he experienced when he first came over here some of the racism they experienced um but also the positive welcome that he got from my side of the family, my mum's side of the family, um, and others. So uh, their history was one I knew about the the Grenadian Revolution, which, you know, my dad was intensely interested in. And I knew quite a bit about um, enslavement, first of all from him and the history books that would be on his bookshelf that I would read. Then at school, although there was a big difference between what I was taught at school and what was on his bookshelf. So his bookshelf had things like, um, uh, the Black Jacobins, um, things about um, Toussaint the overture Haiti, which about much struggle. Uh, the camera, the, the Maroons on Jamaica. So he was more about struggle, whereas what I was taught at school was more about, you know, the good and the great handing emancipation to black people. He was more about their own struggle. So, but between that, that's where I probably picked up most of the information that I knew from. Um, Enslavement and the transatlantic chattel slavery in the initial periods of my life
2: yeah. mm. so when did you really learn so much more about your family's history and and the huge part that enslavement had played in it?
1: I think it, I think if you have any remote interest in politics and history, which I do, then you begin to look at the genesis of where things came from a lot sometimes I, I, I loved hip hop as a kid, sometimes it was through uh, the medium of hip hop and often then black race politics which are slightly different but in terms of understanding that there was a whole thing around the civil rights around the panthers around pan-africanism those kind of things and they all link back to imperialism slavery and colonialism and the effects of people trying to struggle against that i think where i've learned a lot as well is on this program my dad's told me things on this program that i didn't know about myself um, i was like i remember my dad telling me about my great grandmother. Um, who came from Barbados thinking why didn't you tell me that before Uh, and things about you know um, Grenada itself and Guave where he's from and he was talking in the interview with me and Laura in the podcast he's talking about some of the local stories around slavery of what was going on where who the rebels were Julian Fed on, and others so I learned quite a bit from doing this podcast as well
2: And Laura, what about you? Your realisation of what was in your family history is a relatively recent thing, isn't it?
4: It is. I mean, basically, all I really knew about slavery, it was what I was taught at school. And maybe it was the same for you, Fee and Clive, which is that we were taught in history that Britain abolished slavery. That was a fantastic achievement, not that the British Empire was up to its neck in slavery. So that was pretty much all I knew, as, as Clive said, the great and the good. But then University College London in about about nine years ago put online a a database of all of the compensation that was paid to Britain's slave owners at the abolition of slavery in 1833. And then some years after that, someone in the family was noodling around on the UCL database of legacies of British slavery, as it's called, and typed the name Trevelyan in, because you can search by family name, by island, by plantation to find out who was paid compensation. And just think of that. It was people like the Trevelyans who were paid compensation when slavery was abolished, not Clive's ancestors, not the enslaved. And so in the family, people were really shocked to discover that Trevelyans part-owned 10 plantations in Grenada, um, six of which they got compensation for, and got about £3 million in today's money. So that sparked this whole debate in our family about who are we.
2: And how did that debate Go. I mean, some people might find it hard to really believe that that story of your family had not been told through the generations, that it was a surprise to you.
4: Well, I guess that's so British, isn't it, to sweep it under the rug? Because once slavery was abolished in the 19th century... Then it became an embarrassment, didn't it? And this narrative took hold of Britain. Oh, fantastic! Abolished slavery well ahead of those terrible Americans, ignoring the fact that, of course, British America was a colony until, you know, uh, the Americans fought the War of Independence. So I think it, there's a shame in association with slavery. And by the late nineteenth century, uh, clearly, nobody who is within living memory in our family knew anything about it or if they did they didn't talk about it so my dad's generation who obviously knew his grandparents they my dad's generation knew nothing of this link until they actually began looking on the ucl database and then it just prompted this reckoning because you know we had quite distinguished relatives in the 19th century and the early 20th one was the best-selling historian Uh, of Britain, George Macaulay Trevelyan, and his histories of England. Don't mention the family linked to enslavement. Again, they celebrate, he celebrates abolition. Had us thinking, well, gosh, who are we? Mm.
1: I I mean, I'm listening to Laura there. And one of the things we we kind of discuss and pick up in Grenada and Barbados is this thing about forgetting, Um, both the, the kind of Post enslavement populations in British the British Caribbean islands is kind of deliberate forgetting, which wasn't just for on their part. It was also in terms of the education system that was there. I think a lot of people have this idea that after emancipation it was this tropical paradise. It was a brutal form of apartheid, and you know Sir Hilary Beckles was telling us that he went to give lunch to his father in the sugarcane fields in I must have been the fifties or the sixties, and there was a kind of white teenage youth on horseback, you know, literally swearing at them. So, you know, there's a whole long history of what happened after emancipation. uh, And then... Also, the extractionism that continues to this day. This is one of the most indebted parts of the world. Um, and, you know, we've left it that way with no infrastructure, with a climate crisis approaching it. These are things that we discuss in the podcast. But that forgetting also happened here. I mean, I, I've been doing quite a bit of reading behind it. And it's really interesting. There was this kind of period in the kind of post 45, 48, after the kind, as the empire began to break up, where people like Enoch Powell, very, very early on, were saying, you know, Britain without an empire is like a head without a body. Now he said that in 1950. By 1965, when he was writing his book, he was he'd basically moved along with a big part of the British establishment into saying that well, the empire wasn't that much. That the colonies were landed on us, it really wasn't that big a deal. And it's a deliberate forgetting because if you forget who extracted the wealth from the Caribbean, and who's kept it, where it goes to those British overseas territories, the Cayman Islands, the Virgin Islands, which we control, which, you know, are about £180 billion of tax that should be coming to the UK Exchequer isn't. You begin to piece together this story about where wealth was created, and who's held on to it, uh, to the modern day. And so of course, you'd want to forget about that. Because once people understand where that wealth came from, they're going to probably start thinking, hmm, we could do with some of that. Right. And It's not just people in the Caribbean, it's people here in the UK as well, mm. I think
2: We are in conversation with Laura Trevelyan and Clive Lewis talking about the podcast they've made together called Heirs of Enslavement. After learning about her ancestors, Laura decided she didn't want to just carry on without some kind of reckoning. So I asked her why she decided that she wasn't just going to forget.
4: I think because, you know, like you, I'm a journalist, I'm a storyteller. This seemed like a huge story and a microcosm of Britain, as Clive's saying, this selective amnesia about slavery. And so... You know, my BBC bosses last year let me go to make a documentary in Grenada. You know, I had to really persuade them. They were like, this can't be a jolly in the Caribbean, Laura. You have to, if you go, you've got to pose the question, should I pay reparations for what my ancestors did? So I went and I asked that question of everybody I met do I have a responsibility all these generations later for what my ancestors did? And the answer that came back was a resounding yes. And yes, and you should invest in education because here in Grenada, there are still. Parts of the island where we have pockets of illiteracy, if you can believe that, all these years after emancipation. So it really just set me thinking. And I met, made a lot of friends in the Caribbean. And this February, you know, I, we went as a family to publicly apologize because that was something that leaders in Grenada felt would be important and would set an example and to announce that, you know, we were giving money to an education fund in Grenada. And it did set an example, everybody was right. And that just set me thinking. And then Clive stood up in Parliament for you on the same day that our family apologised. And he said, if a family can apologise and pay reparations for slavery, why can't Britain's government? And that's how we connected. So that
2: is such an important question to answer and we will come to that in a couple of moments time but I want to explain to the listeners what the podcast is about because it is about this dual journey isn't it that you two make together and actually it's beautiful in many ways and it's very very thought-provoking. Can you take us to that point when you're both walking on a beach in Grenada and what that meant to both of you Clive if you can start
1: um it the, the whole journey uh, being on the plantation that Laura's ancestors owned that my ancestors probably toiled on um was was for me full circle it, it, it you know our history is extremely complex and interwoven and I think Laura did a really brave thing. I know she doesn't see it as that. She doesn't like me saying that, but it was a very brave thing to step up and do that. And I think it's open doors in terms of what people can talk about, what's been lab- what we've been able to discuss. But for me being back there, it felt I felt very privileged. I felt like I'd come full circle because so much of what I am is in part because one of my one of my ancestors somewhere down the line was enslaved. Uh, and then obviously through my dad I've come to the UK and eventually become member of parliament and I can raise the issue in parliament off the back of what Laura said so it's all highly complex and interwoven and when you begin to pick it apart you begin to see how intertwined the the, the histories of the Caribbean and the UK which so really are but for me I think the last thing I would say was it it was humbling and it made me also, it doesn't, I don't want people to feel guilty. I don't want people to feel anger. I want people to understand because I think it enriches us. It's definitely enriched my life because it's given me an understanding of a, of a past that sometimes I was angry about, I'll be honest. But it's made me see it in a, in a bigger picture way, a more intertwined way with the British society that I've grown up in. And I want others to experience that as well. It's not just about the money for the Caribbean and doing what I think is right for this country but it's also about this country asking itself who are we and what kind of country do we want to be in the 21st century and will we look back on our past with open eyes and have an honest interrogation of that history and i think it'll make us a better country i don't think we'll have windrush scandals for a start i think we'll have a a far more open tolerant view uh, of racism and, and and immigration and those kind of issues i think we'll be more at ease with ourselves and i think it's a kind of trauma that we haven't looked into yet and i think we should
2: Laura, what were your emotions going to Grenada?
4: Well, it was just, there were two things really. One was being with Clive. We went to this plantation, Beausajou, and Clive's dad still lives really near to it. And that's just typical of the legacies of slavery that people, generations later, don't move that far away from the plantation where their ancestors were enslaved. And so a Grenadian historian we met, Nicole Philip Dow, said, yes, you know, it's highly likely that Clive's ancestors were enslaved by yours, Laura. So we went to the Beausaujou plantation and to be there really at what's a crime scene. And there's me looking at the plantation house and thinking, oh, this is, you know, so elegant. It looks like gone with the wind. This is just so horrible to think of what happened here. And then Clive's looking at the sugar cane. He's looking at the fields and he's, really quite visibly shaken by the thought that his ancestors may have toiled here. And it was really hot when we were there. We couldn't Mm. but be struck by the horrible conditions, by the fact that the sugar cane, it's like a razor in your hand. And we just were both transported back in different ways with very different experiences. So that was really very profound. But the other thing that was extraordinary for was meeting Clive's dad, Tony because he's part of the Windrush generation. He left Grenada for opportunities in Britain, became a really successful trade unionist, uh, you know. started on the factory shop floor, then has come back to Grenada, where he's actually running the Fisherman's Collective. <laughs> so still a trade unionist, but he's the story of Britain. And it, I just think it's so poorly understood that Windrush itself was a, a legacy of slavery. People left the West Indies because there were no opportunities because of slavery, only to meet discrimination in Britain which is what happened to Tony, Clive's dad, yet he succeeded against all the odds. And look at his son. Like, it's an amazing, uplifting story, but it's really painful as well. Are there quite a few people that
2: you've met in Grenada who really don't want your apology?
4: There are certainly people who are like, well, what does this do for me? What does it change? How's it just making yourself feel good? Uh, and what does, you know, a £100,000 from you do when your ancestors must have made, well, millions from slavery, all of which is true. But what Clive and I found, I think, was that there is some kind of healing quality to raising and discussing these issues. At the very least, because it opens up a discussion, even if you can't solve the pain of the past or or really confront it. So I don't know. It's... It's complicated, but mm. it, the fact that Clive felt that he could stand up in Parliament because we were in Grenada and that before that he hadn't been able to talk about the whole issue of reparations for the Caribbean, I think it tells you something about the importance of a joint journey yeah. in trying to confront
2: And I will just say that as a listener, there are are a couple of moments where because you are having a conversation with each other, which has emotions in it, doesn't it? You know, you're Mm. not talking as a journalist to an MP about policy. Uh, Those moments really crackle, actually. I think they're so immensely important to try and understand what it is that we should do with a sense of shame or we should actually do with a sense of guilt it's important to have actions isn't it Clive not just emotions about this
1: I think so so I mean obviously the the talking about trauma is a good thing and we can't control the past the past has happened but we can influence the present and the future, and and that's I think what we're doing when we're talking to each other. We're attempting to do that. We're attempting to understand what happened, the implications for today, and and our part in that story. And and it's a story that's still being written. It really is. And know mm-hmm. that's the thing that I saw when I, when I went to the when we were at Beau Beauséjour, uh, we stood there with Laura. I said, I felt that my ancestors were watching. I could see them lined up. And, and it's almost as if, I think for them, there was a, I'm not going to say a closure, that's just too much. It's not for me to close their pain and what they went through. But there was a, just a kind of a full circle that someone had, one of their descendants had come back full circle with the person who was up on the house most of the time who owned them. Uh, there was just a kind of, um, a, you know, a, a universal kind of sweet spot to that. Um, I can't really put into any other words. But, you know, you, you're right, it's about action now. Um, and, and you know, there's a growing campaign on this issue. It's not about retribution. It's not about making people feel bad. It's about it's about having a conversation and seeing where that leads. You know, th- there was a great it was a great injustice, one of the greatest injustices against other human beings that was committed and, and it's enriched this country with the sixth richest biggest economy in the world there's a reason for that and there's a reason why we maintain that position at the expense of other islands mm. and other countries so that's the story of today how do we have you know and let's let's be honest we've left the european union we're looking at the world It's globalization is fragmenting um we need more friends and i think you know we need to kind of be able to say to them hold on, we do acknowledge the part that we played in, you know, the the history and the present day and we want to do something about it and Having this conversation to start of that process.
2: So, can you answer that question that you asked in Parliament? If Laura Trevelyan's family can make reparations, why can't the UK government? Because other governments have, haven't they?
1: Yes, so they have in the Netherlands. It's been controversial. Uh, I think one of the things that they missed in the Netherlands was having the conversation. If I'm honest, I think um, the government initially tried to just drop the money on Suriname, and Suriname said no. Um, and I think it's been very divisive. I, I personally think I think there should be a Royal Commission or something like that on this issue. I think there should be citizens' assemblies. I think there should be a learning process. I think we should discuss this issue. And then I think once you've done that, once you understand where so much of that wealth it is, and it was very interesting, Arlie Gill, the uh, chair of the Grenadian Reparations Committee, when I said to him, My constituents, I can't go back to my constituents in Norwich and say to them, you should be paying for reparations. They were paying for the reparations for the owners up until 2015 in their taxes. Why should you now they now pay, you know, people in the Caribbean? And and he said they shouldn't. He said, What you have to understand is that the people who've been extracting from us All of these centuries, the corporations, the banks, the financial institutions, the wealthy in your country, they're still sitting on that money. They still have it in offshore accounts. They still have it in your country. You're one of the most unequal countries in the world. They should be paying for this. And the way that the state does that is through looking at where wealth is and how you tax that. And that would open up wealth for people in this country, would open up access to better public services. And a small fraction of that could go to the Caribbean. But I don't think you can go from A to C unless you go through B. And B is that conversation about our history.
2: Laura, do you think that it is feasible that that money could be extracted? Your family has given the money entirely voluntarily, hasn't it? But if somebody had come to you and said, your predecessors, your ancestors were involved in this crime, and we would now like some money from you, would it, may it have been a different outcome?
4: Yeah, I think it would have been totally different. And it would have, people would have probably run for the hills in that situation. Um, and we did have a big debate as a family. And one of the reservations that people had who didn't sign the letter of apology, and 104 family members did, but people who didn't sign were really worried about a legal precedent. You know. And this is why Britain's government, Britain's royal family, have never apologised for their links to slavery. Because if you apologise, that means you acknowledge that you're responsible for a wrong, and therefore maybe you're on the hook for the money. Really what I hope is, as Clive says, that, yeah, you can't go right from A to C at 100 miles an hour by beginning a discussion, maybe when there's a change in government. If that happens in Britain, perhaps a new government, perhaps one that had David Lamy as foreign secretary, who's a child of the Caribbean, like Clive, Guyanese, British. Perhaps then, as we look towards the 200th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in Britain, 2033, Perhaps we can bring it all into focus and realise that the past informs the present and that Britain has a debt, a black debt to the Caribbean and owes the Caribbean better investment in its infrastructure and its health and its education because Britain extracted all of the wealth.
2: Clive Lewis and Laura Trevelyan, and their podcast, Heirs of Enslavement, is available now. It's one of those podcasts, it's not an easy listen, it's got some really crunchy moments in it, but it's got so much information about slavery and stuff that I think you know we we aren't taught it in schools but that is not an excuse to have ignorance on the subject i didn't know or realize where limbo dancing was from for instance mm. so lots of things are explained those really really long echoes of slavery that are still ringing out, especially across the Caribbean, are really explored as well. And it's just a really good thing to fill in the gaps of our shared history. And I think that podcast does a remarkable job of doing that.
3: I think um, the point that the infrastructure of far too many Caribbean countries just isn't as good as it should be, and that is also connected to what happened during that time. And, of course, we have also plundered, and we have, we've taken their people as well, because it suited us to ask back, um, well, the Windrush generation. We asked those people to come here to fill the gap left by the couple of million people who scarpered and left Britain to become immigrants themselves after World War Two. So, you know, we have... It's very difficult, isn't it? Because I think Laura Trevelyan is someone who has very firmly put her head above the parapet because she chose not to do nothing and did something she's been criticized um and that's completely wrong because what about all the people who could say something about their own family's involvement in this who've not said a word but that's exactly what clive lewis says mm. in the interview that
2: you know what what whatever position you might hold yeah. you have to admire her bravery uh, oh yes, and absolutely. she started something because you know other families uh, have now realized that they need to do the same thing mm. so her contribution is massive, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend it actually. There are two episodes available at
3: the moment and there are plenty more to come. So tomorrow we are talking to a food historian and anyone who thinks that, um, what's food, you know, what's food history? What's the significance here? It's just one of those slightly niche I suppose, but endlessly fascinating areas. Um, and Penn Vogler is her name. She wrote a book a couple of years ago called Scoff and this is a new one called Stuffed and um, she writes each chapter based around a food group. So, for example, there's a chapter about turnips uh, and there's a chapter about potatoes. But honestly, you'd be amazed by how many really interesting nuggets there are in this book. Tofu? No. Kefir? No, these things don't feature because this is... Kombucha? Uh, this She talks about a world where, at one point, the broad bean was of immense significance in this country. And, I mean, I can't stand the things. But that's probably why it was included in the coronation quiche.
2: Well, what a wonderful observation. And you're right. The quiche that you weren't very keen to (laughs) either publicise, talk about or even taste. Or taste, Mm. Right. Right. You win that one. Didn't go unnoticed. Dear Fear and Jane, we end with this. It's from Sue Brask. Just a speedy email regarding the French calling periods Les Anglais. I googled it and it says they also have some of the most colourful expressions such as Les Anglais ont débarqué, the English have landed, a reference to the British Redcoats who fought off Napoleon's army at the Battle of Waterloo. I bet that's not in the movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I don't think I'm going to watch that. Are you? I'm going to see it next Friday. Are you? Yes. Uh, and Sue just says uh, how much she enjoys the podcast. That's very kind of you. And she's listening to us in Denmark, having lived there for years. Uh, as she describes it, the land of Carlsberg and herring. Get one down, you'll love, as the Danes
3: would say, tusen tuck," which means I don't know. It's probably very rude, right? Just the thought of a herring, and I feel a little burp coming on. to <laughs> Take that with you on the tube. Yeah, I will. <laughs> but thank you for that. It's Sue, isn't it? That was from Sue. That was Sue. Thank yes. you very much, Sue. Over there in Denmark. Wherever you are, whether you're here or over there, you can contact us, Jane and Fee, at times.radio. Apart from you, Angela. No, not you, Angela. Banned. No, she's not really. Don't, we don't want to be horrible. We'll take everyone. Uh, right, have a decent evening and uh, we'll be around again in your ears tomorrow. <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to Angela's email now. Come on, Angela, you can do it. When he I know, A lady listener. I'm sorry.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5.